Well, I think it, it, it was it was it was over a uh, you know it was during the due diligence period where again, in the beginning he said absolutely not. I just want I want cash <laughs> to get out of this deal. And then uh, yeah, again, just through the process, we started to say, hey, you know, this we've we've shown this to a few banks. You know, do you have tax returns? Oh well, I've got five parks. They're all in one LLC, and I'm selling you guys these two. I'm like, okay, well, that's difficult to carve out. So then we kind of explained to him, you know, if you really want to get the highest price for this park. You should carve these two out and you know clean up your books and have yourself you know a couple of year runway of clean financials. Then you can sell it at a higher price and somebody will be able to get bank financing. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Todd Salzinger. Today, we're talking about the process of moving from being a, a high power, high paid finance professional, investing in turnkey real estate moving from that turnkey real estate investing strategy into mobile home parks. That's what Todd is doing now is buying mobile home parks with investors. He comes from a background of buying turnkeys and owning single family rentals. And at one point he decided to upgrade to take his game to the next level to earn more cash flow, partner with investors, and really take it to the next level, earn more wealth, build that cash flow. And uh, mobile home parks are great. I think turnkeys are great too. He does as well. And uh, turnkeys are one of our top five passive wealth strategies out there to take your wealth away from Wall Street. There's nothing wrong with them. But if you want to add more value and move faster, mobile home parks are a great way to do it as well. So that's what we're talking about today. Moving from turnkeys to mobile home parks. We get into the first deal that he did in mobile home park investing, how he found it, how he financed it, how he's managing it, all that great stuff. We get into the nitty gritty here, which is what I love to talk about. If you're new to the show and you haven't yet, take a second, go to your favorite podcast, subscribe, podcast, catcher, catching app, whatever. Look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, give us a subscription. And that way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. If you do enjoy the show and you're an Apple user, please take a quick second, give us a five-star rating review on the Apple Podcast app. That helps other people learn about the show. It helps us get higher in the rankings. It helps other people learn these lessons. And it helps me get a nice little warm feeling when I see your lovely reviews come through. I certainly appreciate that. And I love all the things that you guys have to say. Much appreciated. If you're new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. If you don't know me yet, I'm a real estate investor. I'm a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I haven't bought a mobile home park yet. Who knows what time will tell and what time will bring. We'll see. But I still love learning about them. Without any further ado, today you're going to learn about switching from turnkey investing to mobile home park investing with Todd Salzinger. Here we go. Todd, thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Taylor. It's great to be here. Hey, I'm happy to talk with you. You've achieved a lot of great things and I'd love to share that story with our listeners and pull out you know, some of the lessons you've learned along the way with building your investment portfolio and writing your book and all that great stuff. For our listeners out there who don't know about your background, can you tell us a bit about where you come from, what you do and you know what you're up to now? Sure, sure thing. Uh, yeah, I'm based in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. I was born and raised in San Jose, so I always lived in the Silicon Valley area before it was known as Silicon Valley. And I uh, went to San Jose State University here and started working right after college for high-tech companies here in the Valley. Spent uh, most of my career here, spent a couple of years living uh, over in Europe where I was on, on a business transfer as well as over in the Sacramento area. And uh, again, spent the whole time working in, most of my career working in corporate finance jobs in 
for a variety of medical device and hardware and software companies. And during that time, met started to meet other people that had invested in real estate and started to uh, invest myself with some of the first investments I did by buying single family homes in the Dallas Fort Worth market. So that really got my, you know, really got the juices flowing in terms of trying to invest in real estate with this idea of, okay, if I buy enough of these single family homes, I'll be able to replace my income. And uh, yeah, I realized after not too long, it was going to take a long time to get there doing it that way and started to educate myself about the world of real estate syndications. And, uh, you know, went to a lot of seminars and training and read a lot about that process and decided to build a business around syndications with you know the idea that I've got a you know long history working in corporate finance building you know budgets for multi-million dollar companies so the the idea of like you know understanding financial statements underwriting was something I had a lot of experience with it was kind of second nature to me so I knew I could combine that with my passion in real estate to build a business around syndications nice and you know I'd like to learn more about that process of buying those single families and when you kind of had that realization that they weren't going to do for you what you wanted and, you know, decided to kind of make that pivot. Can you dig us dig in, into that a bit and tell us about what you did there and that, you know, revelation that you had? Sure. I, 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 I don't kind of regret doing it in that way, even though I eventually came to that realization that wasn't the final way I wanted to, to, go, to go in that direction. But to actually go through that process of, you know, being a direct real estate investor, and working with property managers and insurance companies and mortgage brokers and learning about that space was really invaluable. And those turned out to be you know, great investments as well, even though it wasn't something I wanted to do kind of for the long term. So I, I think if somebody's looking to get started and wants to dip their toe in, that's a, that's a really good way to do it. Doing the long distance investing that was a stretch because there were, had been a point in time where I had moved out of a house and kept it as a rental and you know, did the whole landlord thing directly. And that was difficult to do. Uh, so when I met some people that were investing outside of California, I thought that's impossible. How can you own a property or rent to have a, you know, own a rental property that you can't drive by and look at and check out. But I was um, connected with uh, Robert Helms and Russell Gray from the real estate guys who used to actually uh, live here near me. And they would have regular meetups that I would uh, go to. And they they had one of their um, turnkey provider that they worked with who was doing field trips to Dallas. So I flew out there and got on a bus and drove around neighborhoods and met property managers and saw different houses and talked to other people who were doing the out-of-state investing and decided to take the plunge and ended up buying, uh, that's when I kind of started the path, buying those houses there. And it, it turned out to be, you know, actually it was very doable to have, when you find a good property manager and a good provider to work with to provide the houses, it can actually be really successful. And it really struck me when I I had another single family home that I that I owned a couple hours from where I live. And I ended up driving by that house, drove by the outside, saw that it hadn't burned down and just went on my way. And I had done that six months earlier past my Texas houses and did the same thing. Drove by, they were standing and I drove off. And I, then I really came to the realization then that having this house two hours away was really no different than having this house, you know, a few hours flight away. And yeah, so I, I think it's absolutely doable if you find the right team to work with you. That's tough. And, and, you know, turnkeys are oftentimes, you know, in the spaces like bigger pockets are very looked down upon by the, a lot of the folks out there investing in real estate. And I certainly disagree with that sentiment. I'm, I'm not opposed to them 
at all. And I know a lot of folks who have had success with that. I don't know if it's seen as like not earning your stripes enough or something. I don't really know, but it doesn't seem to get the kind of credit that, you know, a lot of the sexier types of real estate, you know, investing do, but you know, it's, it's tried and true. It, it works if it's, if it fits your goals. Yeah, and you and you can do it right the other way. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I knew that the person I was buying. There was one person I worked with that was building new construction for investors. Another guy who was just rehabbing house, houses and flipping them. So I thought, okay, this guy's buying the house for eighty, putting twenty thousand into it, and selling to me for one twenty. It's like, okay, he's making his margin, but he's got a crew and a team, and he's got his capital tied up for that that time. So, uh, you know, I was willing to to pay for that work to have done for me to get the finished product. You know, if I had the time and effort and inclination and, uh, you know, either live close to my property or had confidence in, that I could manage a team remotely, that might be possible. It just didn't seem doable from where I was sitting to take on a construction project long distance to try to, you know, do a long distance rehab. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then making that shift into mobile home park investing, I think is tough, right? A lot of people like (laughs) don't make that shift and, you know, you chose to, you chose to take that step. Can you tell us about that kind of first investment you decided, uh, you know, I'm going to get into mobile home parks. Maybe, you know, I don't know whether you knew how to do it or not when you were getting into it. Walk us through that process and, you know, some of the things you learned along the way. Yeah, well, you know, once I started getting into real estate investing uh, with those single-family homes, you know, I was just devouring all kinds of content from books and podcasts. And when I started to really think about building a business around syndications, I looked at a lot of different asset classes, looked at mobile home parks and apartments and self-storage and groups of single-family homes. And I knew a few people, knew a few operators in the mobile home park business and was following their podcasts and you know, seeing them at different events. And I was always intrigued by that business one because the, you know, some of the dynamics around mobile home parks with lack of new supply and need for affordable housing and ability for higher ability for seller financing and potentially better pricing, working with mom and pop sellers was always interesting. But I'd always heard how difficult it was to to manage and that they were multifamily, but were you know had had differences. So through that process, I uh, met a mobile home park consulting firm based a couple hours from me that kind of specialized in, uh, you know, helping people who were wanted to get into the business, uh, kind of help them through the due diligence and acquisition and turnaround process, and then also handle property management afterwards. Uh, so after I met them, I felt comfortable that I had a, you know, a partner working with me who had a deep expertise in the mobile home park business that I could combine with my uh, finance and other real estate investing business to you know move forward and uh, buy a park and, and raise money for investors. So it wasn't uh, I, I didn't have any experience in it, but I had I had learned a lot about it. I had looked into passive investing in in uh, mobile home park investments, and again through that kind of combination of uh, you know the, the people I'd met and the education I gained along with meeting this consulting firm, I decided to go ahead and take the plunge. Decided you just go for it. I definitely uh, respect that. So. Walk us through, you know, the first deal that that you did and how you found it, what the you know business plan looked like and how it all went. And, you know, give us the give us a skinny. Sure. Please. Yeah. So I uh, once I, you know, once I really started to dig deeper into looking at mobile home parks, I started looking away. A lot of other people do looking at LoopNet, looking at uh, there's a few mobile home park 
brokers out there that specialize in mobile home parks. Other commercial brokers sometimes have listings. So, uh, you know, I was looking all over the place to talk to as many people as I could to find something that would work from a, you know, work from a, a kind of size standpoint. I wanted to get a park that was at least 50 spaces just to be able to have something that could afford a on-site manager, or perhaps a maintenance person. I didn't want to get anything too big, just from a, it was more difficult from a, a competitive standpoint, as well as for an early deal to, to raise money. I didn't want to go, go too big to start. So through that process, I ended up finding parks in Georgia, about an hour and a half outside of Atlanta. And, uh, you know, with a lot of parks, I would, you know, do the, maybe initially the deal would look like it was a great deal. And then you kind of take that next step down and find out that, uh, you know, it wasn't as good or as, as you thought it was. Maybe the broker wasn't or the seller perhaps wasn't representing the property the way it was really performing. Or there would be something about the, the market itself that wasn't that strong. So one of the first things I do when I was looking at a park, just to kind of see if it would seem viable or not, would be really check out the market and the economy if it wasn't in a large metro. And I was mostly looking in secondary and tertiary markets. And uh, the town where I bought these mobile home parks is in a town called Milledgeville, which yeah, I'd never heard of before, not a big city. But when I kind of did that next dive down into the market, I found there's a Lowe's in town, there's a Walmart, there were three colleges, there was a prison, there was a you know a couple different manufacturing firms. So even though the town itself was smaller, there was quite a bit of variety from an economic base standpoint that you know made me feel comfortable that there'd be a consistent flow of, of available tenants uh, in the, in that market. That's good. I mean, uh, the biggest, you know, I think the biggest question with buying any piece of real estate out of state, especially, you know, when you don't have like a turnkey provider to lean on and you're building a team and everything is, you know, how do I do due diligence on this place and and figure out, you know, what the actual condition is. The seller's saying one thing, but you can, uh, how are you going to rely on that? You know, you have to go investigate it for yourself. Can you walk us through that process of actually doing that due diligence? It went, and at what point, you know, you jumped on a plane and decided, you know, I'm going to go check this place out for myself. Yeah. So we got as like as much as we could from the seller. We had a due diligence checklist and got as much as we could from the seller before we went out there. We knew that the seller was only taking accepting cash from his residence. So that made the financial records not as, as clean as we would like. That's not uncommon in the mobile home park business. So it, it's sometimes a, a chance you have to take, but that's sometimes built into the pricing. And it definitely was with this park. This guy, the seller had had it under contract a couple times before or earlier in the past uh, previous couple of years at quite a bit higher pricing, but because the people, they needed bank financing and the guy's financial records weren't clean, they fell out of escrow. So by the time we came in there, you know, same thing. He pulled out his spiral notebook where he had, you know, lots <laughs> one through 71 written down with everybody's rent. He would scratch off when they paid. So yeah, again, not clean records. So but through that process, we, we felt comfortable in terms of just kind of walking the park, seeing how many residents were there, you know, that the income was probably close to what, what he was reporting. But through that process, because we convinced him that with his lack of record keeping, getting bank financing would be difficult, he agreed to do seller financing. So we got great terms with, uh, you know, good interest rate. We did a, a, a deal that had four years interest only. After four years, we can pay the principal down $20,000 and he'll extend it for another four years. So really had the, the flexibility of eight years interest only financing, which yeah, made the, made the deal a lot, a lot easier to close. 
Wow. And like, yeah. what rate did he give you? I mean, it's probably high. Uh, he gave it a uh, uh, five and a half. Yes. No, that's not, that's not bad. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, somebody, know. somebody asked me today, what's the typical loan to value when there's a seller financing situation in mobile home parks. And it's, it's all over the board. It's whatever you can negotiate, whatever the seller feels comfortable with, you know, every seller is in a different situation in terms of how much capital gain hit they want to take, what kind of income they think they might need. And uh, so it's, there's a lot more, uh, I guess, flexibility and variety in, in owner financing with uh, when you're dealing you know, in the mobile home park business when you're dealing with owner financing. I guess, how do you begin in that negotiation process? How do you even start to figure out, figure that out and broach that topic? Because it seems to me in negotiating a seller finance deal, you know, you might have to like teach them about the idea of owner financing and then convince them that you're not going to just, you know, screw the deal up totally. And he's not going to, you know, just get it back and, you know, still have to sell it again. So there seem to be a lot of hurdles to get over in negotiating that. How did you handle that negotiation with him? Um, well, I think it, it, it was it was it was over a uh, you know it was during the due diligence period where again in the beginning he said absolutely not I just want I want cash <laughs> to get out of this deal and then uh, yeah yeah just through the process we started to say hey you know this we've we've shown this to a few banks you know do you have tax returns oh well I've got five parks they're all in one LLC and I'm selling you guys these two I'm like okay well that's difficult to carve out so then we kind of explained to him you know if you really want to get the highest price for this park you should carve these two out and, you know, and clean up your books and have yourself, you know, a couple of year runway of clean financials, then you can sell it at a higher price and somebody will be able to get bank financing. Well, you know, he didn't want to hang on to this park for two more years. And then we, you know, talked to, we explained to him about capital gains. And if you, if we, if you get the cash for this part, you have to pay the capital gains on the entire purchase price versus just the cash you're receiving. And then just with, uh, because I was working with this consulting company uh, called CCI Investments, you know, they really looked him straight in the eye and said, we've been in this business a long time. We've done hundreds of deals. And the only way this deal is really going to get, get done is if you carry back a note on it, knowing that he had the park in escrow a couple of times and those fell through. So that uh, he decided to go ahead and do it after that. Nice. Wow. That worked. So in walking through and, you know, delivering, executing on your business plan, how did that work for you, you know, in setting up your boots on the ground and putting your systems in place? And then I don't know whether you still own these two parks or not. Do you? If if so, you know, talk, tell us about, you know, the, the exit strategy, really. Sure, sure. Yeah. So I, th- these parks were purchased in September of 2019. So with the idea, we'd have a five-year business plan and, you know, in, you know, putting together syndications, um, you know, five years seems to be, you know, kind of a sweet spot. If it's, you know, if it's only two or three years, you might not have the time to really turn around and stabilize the property and get that runway from a, a operating standpoint. If it gets to be seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, then that gets to be less and less comfortable from an investor standpoint. So it seems like five years was that uh, it was a good sweet spot. So uh, the plan was to uh, stabilize the park, increase the occupancy, bring rents closer to market, fill in some of the vacant lots, and then turn around and, and exit by year five. So we, the you know, the timing could have been better because we, again, purchased the park in September, started kind of cleaning up the park, getting rid of some of the bad tenants, some of the tenants that we told them you can't pay cash anymore, didn't like that, and they moved out, which was fine. That's kind of part of getting a new property and turning it around. And then COVID hit. So 
So we did, uh, you know, we have been affected by that in terms of the courts being closed in Georgia, you know, which is typically a very landlord friendly state, which is one of the other criteria I was looking for at the parks. But with the pandemic hitting and the courts being closed, some people were actually affected by it because, you know, this is in the affordable housing space and others just knew that it was their time to take advantage of it because the courts were closed. So we've still been working through that and trying to, you know, get tenants out and get people through the eviction process, which is still backed up in the in the county that these parks are in in Georgia. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So how have you, how have you dealt with that? I mean, that is a Disruption pre-COVID to your collections when you say, hey, you can't pay cash anymore and, you know, folks move out and then a further disruption when, you know, folks stop paying, say, I don't know whether you have park-owned homes or just all, you know, just lots that you're renting out. But, you know, how how do you kind of, you know, handle that and, and deal with it moving through the process? Yeah, well, we're we're working as as fast as we can, you know, get a get somebody through the eviction process. We we do that. So, you know, we were monitoring on a weekly basis, like when are the courts opening? When you know, when can we get these things filed? We've worked with some rental assistance agencies in Georgia recently, who are who are finally trying to get to a point where they're trying to you know arrange where they can have money available to either directly to tenants or directly to a landlord to keep people in their houses so they don't get evicted. One of our tenants got some assistance from a local church who was taking donations to help people stay in their homes. So it really is kind of on a case-by-case basis trying to work with those tenants to figure out, okay, like how can we get you back, you know, how can we get you back current and not put you through that eviction process? Hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, regarding, you know, scaling up and going further and doing more deals, after you acquired those two, you know, what was next? What, what did you do next in the mobile home park space? Did COVID interrupt deal flow too significantly or, you know, something else? What happened? Yeah. So after that, just after I closed on the park in Georgia, another opportunity came up for a park in Tennessee. And I, I had the park wholesale to me. And there was, I had, there was a really short timeline to close just because the park was already in due diligence and the seller was anxious to close. So I purchased it myself with the idea that I would put it into a syndication after that. And that's what I did. So I closed on the park at the end of 2019. And then went out and raised money from investors and sold the LLC into the new LLC. Again, timing wasn't perfect. I actually had the, the my first webinar to launch the uh, launch the investment was the uh, couple of days before the lockdown happened. Oh, so, wow. kind of had to put things on pause for a little bit, and uh, you know, shift a few things around uh, in the plan. Uh, uh, and that one, we kind of the park had really low occupancy just because of owner neglect over time. But we got it for a great price. And uh, with that one, we have a three-year turnaround plan to get the park up to around fifty percent occupancy, and then find another person that's interested in kind of taking it the rest of the way. So, um, so again, that part I think in the, in the mobile home park business, you'll see that every you know, every park, every situation is really different, much more so than I think I see in, in multifamily. I think it would be, you know, not as common to see a 100-unit apartment building that only has 40 people living there because the owner decided not to turn units to make them available or just typically run by, you know, more professional uh, more professional people or people with more resources who, who can turn those around. But in the mobile home park business, like the one in Tennessee, we purchased from an 84-year-old woman who had owned the park for 20 years. She owned quite a few other things in town. And this was just like another asset that she was tired of owning. And you know, we kind of came in at the right time and were able to pick it up. Nice. Nice. 
Well, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the book you wrote as well while we've got you here, Success Habits of Super Achievers. That is a very, uh, I'd say, ambitious title, but also uh, you know, <laughs> promising. Can you tell us about the book a bit? I mean, we're not going to get sure. The whole I'll thing uh, show up the uh, uh, the title here: Success Habits of Super Achievers. Yeah, I was re- really uh, proud to be a part of this book. Uh, I'm a part of a, a mastermind with Kyle Wilson, who was Jim Rohn's 18 year business partner, and I was able to take part in this book with about 80 other people, including Brian Tracy and Darren Hardy and um, Phil Collins from Def Leppard and Major League Baseball player Todd Stottlemyre and a lot of great authors and thought leaders who just are, you know, sharing their stories about, um, you know, their journey, their success, you know, success habits and what kind of took them from, you know, early days in their life and, and career to, to where they are now. So, um, yeah, it's definitely an exciting project to be a part of. Nice. Awesome. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Todd, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? I, I would have to say my uh, my house is in Texas. Uh, I think you know I, I ended up selling those last year to take some of those proceeds and put it into my mobile home park business. And you know during my whole period, it was just you know absolutely outstanding uh, education. But from a financial perspective, it was a great investment. Sounds like a, a great way to you know time the market as well and picked one of the best markets in the country as well for for equity growth. Yeah, I mean, 2013 seemed like it might be too late when I first bought that. But <laughs> right. It's, you know, it was, you know, looking back now, that was just fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 2014, you might have even been all right. 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 All right. Great. So we had we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Uh, actually, one of the first investments I made with a self-directed IRA that I opened was for a construction loan. So a guy in San Antonio was building fourplexes. And after the crash happened, he couldn't get bank financing anymore. So he was borrowing private money, paying pretty good interest, but on, on a short-term basis, so it was getting hard money. This idea that he would take the money, fix the homes, you know, build the fourplexes, and then sell them. And during that process, he ended up, a couple of his suppliers went bankrupt after he'd already fronted money to them. And the project fell apart. And he ended up filing for bankruptcy. And I you know, ended up getting about I don't know, I think about 65, 70% of my investment back. So I didn't lose everything, but I, you know, lost, you know, a fair amount and the opportunity cost of, you know, kind of holding all this money in an investment for a couple of years. So that was definitely be the worst investment. Ouch. I mean, I think, I think lending with retirement accounts into real estate investments is an awesome opportunity for folks out there to passively Mm -hmm. invest, but it has major, major risks to it. I mean, you're locking that money up. If you're, Lending on a flip, for example, I mean, you it, unless you know what you're doing, your your odds of losing it all are not very <laughs> not very low. They could be fairly high. So so loans are definitely uh, a risky risky proposition, in my opinion. <clears throat> yeah, and one of the biggest things I learned from that is I was I was I because I was investing in a fourplex, it was one fourth of it. So you know I couldn't just foreclose on the partially built house or the land. I was in there with three other people. So if it would have been a hard money loan on an individual property, then I could have gotten through the process maybe much earlier and either, uh, you know, taking the land finished construction or if it was closer to construction, it may have turned out a little bit better. I wonder if he knew that when he was setting it up, just thought it's going to be harder for them to foreclose on me if it goes south. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. My favorite question here at the end of the show is... I think he's pretty successful leading up to this. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I dropped... I, I, I think my internet connection fell out there. I, I don't know what we got. 
Let's go. We'll just start that little bit back over again. Or I'll try to pick it up. Maybe he knew that. Maybe he thought, you know, it's going to be harder for for them to foreclose on me if I break it up this way. I don't know. Do you think that's the case? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he had been pretty successful before this. I just think he got in, you know, got in over his heels and, you know, gave money to some vendors that he shouldn't have. So, um, but I think one of the other things I learned from that too is I found out afterwards that a lot of the money went to paying down another, some other debt as well as paying a, an attorney and a broker who did the deal. So not all of my money was going right into the project. So that was another red flag. If I was going to do it again, I would dive in a little bit more in terms of exactly where all that money's going. Mm, ouch. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Coming up in corporate America, you know, networking is important. You want to build a good network of people that you... Sorry, I, my internet connection fell out again. I'm going to re-ask oh, really? the question. Okay, you've, you've seemed like you've looked fine, but... <clears throat> I don't... I, I, yeah, I lost you for probably 15 seconds. And if, if I can't hear you, then it's probably not going on the recording. Yeah, yeah. So I hate Comcast. Comcast is the worst company on the planet, in my uh, opinion. I pay for the best package and I get the shittiest internet. But anyway, uh, the editor, please you know, make this sound good. I'm going to re-ask the question. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, I think uh, I think for me it's really all about networking and you know getting around good people. Uh, I think when I you know growing up in corporate America, networking is you know everybody hears about that. Okay, you want to be able to you know keep your contacts. If I leave a job, I want to be able to go back to my old boss or colleagues I worked with. But it's kind of very insular, just about like jobs you're trying to get or maintain for the future. But when I got into the world of real estate investing and and personal development, I just found how important it was just to, you know, get around people that are doing different things, thinking ahead, thinking about growing personally and professionally. Uh, you know, and that includes, you know, getting out to you know, getting out to events and talking to people, whether it's local meetups, you know, actually making the time and effort to, you know, fly or drive distances to, you know, go to other real estate uh, type events that we actually get around people. It's, I think it's a great inspiration and uh, a great way to, you know, learn more than you might just learn in your local area. So I think that's one thing that I think is one of the most important is just to get out as much as possible and, you know, surround yourself and learn from some of the best. Absolutely. You know, it's, I really appreciate that you kind of drew the the parallel or maybe not parallel between networking in the, you know, corporate America world where it's, yeah, it's there, whatever. I'm not that worried about it compared to in the real estate investing space where it's like, it's so important that, you know, so many of these deals get done. That's, it's who, you know, and less what, you know, there's someone, you know, right. But you know, how, how important networking is, especially in this real estate space. Todd, thank you for joining us. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to, you know, talk about mobile home park investing, what have you, where can they find you? Yeah. So my company's name is Blue Elm Investments. Uh, it's the color blue, like, and like the elm tree. And that's Todd, T-O-D-D, at blueelminvestments.com. So yeah, I'd love to talk about real estate, mobile home park. I've got a lot of experience working in a lot of other parts of real estate and know a lot of other operators and love to talk real estate. So if anybody wants to uh, reach out. I'd love to talk to them. Um, and I'd like to offer too, you know, the first, you know, five uh, listeners that I want to, uh, you know, reach out and say hi, if they want a copy of the uh, Success Habits book, I'd be happy to send a copy. Awesome. Well, that is a compelling offer and a ticking clock. So everybody out there, don't forget to uh, shoot Todd an email and ask for a copy of the book. Todd, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a regular rating and review 
on Apple Podcasts is very much appreciated. and helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you on the, the next one. Bye-bye.